Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello there and welcome to a very special edition of Inside here on RadioLamont.com. I'm John Hindhoff and coming back to, I'm pretty certain, the place where this series of programmes all began. Somewhere in the region of seven or eight years ago, I drove up to a particularly beautiful part of Derbyshire near Repton, which is where I am again today. Then I was coming to see Zytec today. Well, it's Gibson Technology. That's changed. What else has? Well, we'll find out during this edition of Inside on RadioLamont.com. The inside story on the teams, suppliers and circuits. Inside on RadioLamont.com. Well, the man who showed me around all those years ago hasn't changed at all. John, you look exactly the same as eight years ago. John Manchester standing uh, outside. It's hard to believe it's it's all those years since I was last here. Yeah, you couldn't say that with a straight face, could you, John? <laughs> yeah, a little bit thinner and a little bit grey around the gills, I guess. But yeah, um, not a lot's changed, I guess. Not a lot's changed. Well, let's find out. And uh, well, let's get inside. And the first thing I notice is this uh, beautiful Zytec Motorsports prototype. LMP car uh, in the very simple blue and white livery. Uh, Star Wars and Mobile One on it. Shimoda and Chilton. Uh, that would be Tom Chilton in those days. Uh, Maxi's brother about to go and drive for Nissan. In fact, would have driven this car. Yeah, both Tom and Max drove this car. I think um, Max drove it when he was probably about 16 at Silverstone, something like that. And he so was quick. He was quick, yeah, yeah. So quite a lot of history to it. And as I say, the reason this car's in, in reception, really, it was the, the 04S. It was the uh, the car that qualified third overall at Le Mans, which I'm sure you remember mm. well. I'm sure Audi do as well. Yes. And uh, also, it was the first car to beat the Audi R8 on track. So we've got uh, you know a great amount of history and heritage with this car. It's fantastic, yeah. It's a big, law-imposing car, and despite its its relatively advanced years, John, I think it's aged well. It it still looks imposing, and it it's actually still looks fairly current. Yeah, it does indeed. I was, we've sold um, the the car that the sister car that went to race in Japan. Um, Chris. Um, Dyson's just bought that car, and he phoned me up the other day, and he was saying to me, John, she still looks as beautiful now, 10 years uh, later than she Mm. did when she was new. The biggest differences, I guess, and how you would spot them, there's no centre fin uh, on the back. That legislation, of course, has brought that in. The the rear-end treatment with the the very simple two pylons holding up a a pretty flat, plain wing with no end plates on it. That is very different, and the back end of the car... So low, of course, as well, on this car. But around the front, John, if I just come round the front here, the way that the nose of the car is incorporated into uh, the design and you're managing the air around 
the inside of those wheel arches and through into the air intakes. It's very single-seater, and it's very much a style that has come back in vogue recently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the changes in cars has been brought on by regulations. Mm. So what you can keep on the car that works well or improve, you're going to do so. But if you look at the picture on the wall, um, the, the 09S, you can mm. see a lot of features, even though it's a totally different car, some almost you know six or seven years on from it so yeah a lot of things are similar but a lot of things that you really see changed are because of the regulations we've had to do it i love it i love it and the, this chris is going to race one of these in the states is he i think he is i'm not quite certain what chris is going to do um i think he's bought it to to race yes certainly race whether it's some sort of historic racing or something well the r8's racing there i think i think the r8 was still racing in contemporary trim when it was eligible to race as a uh, as a, a legends car in the States because it lasted so long. Yeah, okay, well, you never know. We might get the chance to beat it again, you know. Good man, I like that, I like that. The big difference, of course, from when I was last here, and it's evidenced on, on this car, on the headrest and on the air intake, Zytec Motorsport, I did mention in the introduction, it's now Gibson Technology. You've got a new shirt, and that is relatively recent. But I think for our listeners, it's probably a good idea to go back and, and talk about the genesis of the whole Zytec Gibson, because Bill Gibson effectively started all this off, what, how long ago now? Bill started the company off in 82, mm. um, designing engine management systems, the first digital engine manager management system to run in Formula 1 in 83 with Ayrton Senna on the Tolman car. Wow. So a lot of, you know, a lot of history there. Uh, and then the company diversified from engine management systems into engines in 87. He built a company that was based in Derby called Alan Smith Racing, which is basically what Zytec Engineering became. And we built Formula 3000 engines and developed on from that, designed our own engines, moved into sports car racing, and essentially become the main part of the Zytec group for doing all the motorsport activities. Mm. So all of the, the engines were done here, all the design, all the development a lot of the motorsport work all being done around Zytec uh, engineering and then I think in 2002 he bought the assets of Reynard and then obviously we started to move into the, the, um, the sort of chassis side of the business. When I came here eight years ago I went to the wrong place I didn't come to Repton to start with I went to another big shiny glass building just a little bit down the road so that was another side of the business Yeah that was Zytec Automotive based in Fradley Litchfield which is about 15 minutes drive from here uh, and what they did there they basically did all the control electronics all the engine management systems for motorsport for road cars um, the Rolls-Royce cars had them the Aston Martins the Jaguar XJ220s uh, and also they moved into electric vehicle technology mm. so initially all the electric vehicle work was done here then when the new company um, the new factory was built for Zytec Automotive in Fradley they moved it all to there uh, and during the, the early days of moving into Fradley, Motorola acquired a 20% stake in um, Zytec Automotive. And Zytec Automotive developed the, uh, the Motorola engine management system for the Dodge Vipers. Ah. So all the Dodge Vipers run uh, a Zytec engine management system, but branded as a Motorola. Motorola then got um, bought out by Continental. So Continental and... Well, the tyre people? Yeah, the tyre people, but I think are the third or second largest manufacturer of automotive products in the world. So, you know, you've got a few cars in that car park out there. I can guarantee probably 50% of them will have Continental brakes on. Right. So they're a big, big, big automotive manufacturer. So they acquired this, this little company called Zytec, wanted to go along and see what it was all about, and I think they liked it very much. So much so they said to Bill, we want to buy another 30%. So 50% of wow. Zytec Automotive was owned by Continental and 50% by Bill Gibson. There was a good reason for that, though, because at the time, 
the technology part of the company was making massive strides in electric vehicle technology. Yeah, that's essentially why they wanted to buy it. The electric vehicle technology was far, far in advance of anything Continental had within their sort of basis of all the companies they owned which is a big statement isn't it massive statement yeah and and of course of that since then obviously a lot of the uh, the products the audi you know the r8 the audi r8 electric car those are zytec electric motors on there uh, and a lot of the the other electric motor work that's out there in the um, in the sort of automotive sector quite a lot of that has been done by zytec automotive i do remember seeing things with a three-pointed star on here from mercedes-benz when we were down here eight years ago which we couldn't talk about then i presume we're past the statute of limitations for that but there was an awful lot going on under the skin of, of various pretty pretty technologically advanced projects that were coming out of this area of Derbyshire. Yeah absolutely yeah so um, it's, it's quite surprising when you see a little company like Zytec which is essentially about 250 people in total in those days which is quite a small company mm. you know, now the, the technology and the products that we supplied to big automotive manufacturers was quite quite astounding really. And, and when did the, this part of the business moved to, to Repton? We moved here in about a purpose-built factory in about 1998, 99, okay. I think. So yeah. we've been here just, well, you know, 15 years, probably a little bit less than that now. Um, and then what happened was, um, as the company expanded and got bigger and bigger, um, Continental decided they wanted to have more control. So um, about two years ago, Bill Gibson sold out his, uh, his remaining shares to, to Continental. I think they probably made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so Zytec Automotive is now 100% owned by Continental. And is that still called Zytec Automotive? It's still, it's still called Zytec Automotive, but obviously still has Continental very much uh, in sort of a lot of the branding. So a lot of the publicity is Zytec Automotive, but with Continental Engineering Services logo attached to it now as well. Right. And then what happened then was um, built now owning 100% of Zytec Engineering. Um, we decided it was going to cause confusion if we kept the name Zytec with Zytec Automotive. So de- the decision was made to rebrand the company. And by calling it Gibson, of which I have to say Bill was very much against, it's not got a big ego, did that not... That was exactly the question I was going to ask. That doesn't strike me as a Bill thing at all. He did not want to do it, but we all convinced him that, you know, by calling it Gibson, we keep the link. The founder of the company still having mm-hmm. involved. So after much arm twisting and sort of around he conceded to calling it Gibson Technology. Essentially though John it's still exactly the same company as it was eight years ago when you come to see us. The the situation that you have here is idyllic actually because you had a beautiful part of the country, uh, relatively well served by motorways to get where you want to be but by the same token there's some great roads around here and you would not think driving into the village of Repton or even in fact, you can drive past the factory and virtually not see it. It's one of those artisanal British companies that just continues, as far as I'm concerned, to do great work and and to, to grow and expand with whatever life throws at it. And, I mean, you've been here long enough now to see the highs and lows. What, what differences am I going to see when I walk around today from eight years ago? I think you're going to see um, a lot of more variety of engines. Uh, We do a lot of work for Renault now. Um, We obviously do a lot of work for Nissan. So, you know, we've got two big motor manufacturers that we're now working for. And obviously, you know, eight years ago, we wasn't doing that. So Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a much bigger variety of engines than you saw when you was last here. And probably some of the technology in terms of manufacturing and the way we do things has changed a little bit as well. In, I take it the name change hasn't really confused people that much. They still do business with you. There's a, I suppose there is an educational part of what you've got to do with the guys that that are out there. But essentially, the 
I presume what I'm going to say is that the same precepts and the same um, working practices that I saw seven, eight years ago are going to be continued to be done here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the company's essentially not changed, really. Uh, and I think the name change has probably been better received than I thought. It's huh? a big change, change, thing changing the company name. You know, a lot of people knew Zytec. They knew what Zytec was all about. They knew what we did. So it was, it was, a, it was a big decision to take. But I think it's gone quite well. And uh, whether people will ever get used to it, I don't know. But we're certainly doing the best to try and, uh, try and get them to get used to it. Of course, the most obvious thing that we see is in the racing cars. And with the homologation falling for your current LMP2 car, it was a perfect time to change that as well from a Zytec. And now that is named as a Gibson chassis as well. Yeah, the new car is the Gibson 15S, so the first car to carry the Gibson branding. And we've uh, because we re-homologated the car, we've taken the opportunity to do quite a big upgrade to the car. So there's, uh, there's a lot of aero changes on the car. And I'm sure when you see it on the, on the track at, uh, for the first time, which will probably be Paul Ricard test, you're going to see quite a few changes. And the, the, the early signs are that we've made some significant steps forward in terms of performance, so we're all quite hopeful that the, the new Gibson car is going to prove a success on the track. Stays as an open-topped car, which gives it a, a limited lifespan, of course, if the proposals that we expect to come in, come in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we sort of made public last year, we'd started to do some feasibility on a, on a coupe car. But because of the uncertainty over the regulations, especially now that you know there might not be manufacturers coming, uh, you know, all the manufacturers allowed in there that's currently participating, down to probably three or four, we've taken the decision to just hold back a little bit because you know to develop an LMP1 car probably uh, sorry P2 car probably three four million pounds that's a lot of investment to suddenly have no market so we've got to be very careful so we've 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 put the brakes on that a little bit just to see how things pan out. That's slightly frustrating for you because clearly you've got some good ideas you've worked with the current model for three plus years you've developed that to a, a position and improved it now you must have been able to think oh, you know we could have turned out a pretty decent coupe here and and now you've as you say you've had to put that in the back burner yeah absolutely from an engineering point of view extremely frustrating um you know but from a business point of view no brainer really you just can't do it and you can't risk the business the business has to come first so yes um, not not the not the our most ideal situation but i believe the decision we've made at this point was the right decision to slow it down Feel free not to answer this or to tell us that you know we'll hear in due course. We expect four manufacturers, at least three of which are based in Europe, or a maximum of three based in Europe. Is that business that Gibson Technology would look to tender for? We assume it's going to be a tender process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've been part of sports car racing since 2000, and it's very much part of our business. And I'd like to think we're an established name in sports car mm. racing. And certainly, you know, chassis um, are something that's very integral to us, uh, and so are engines. But I believe that there's a possibility that you can't do both. So if we make chassis, we can't do engines. If we make engines, we can't do chassis. So I guess we have to make the decision, should we be chosen as either, um, which is it going to be? So a um, little bit of uh, the fate has been taken out of our hands, I guess. And a bit of talking to do internally before uh, you make those the tenders, I'm sure. All right, let's leave that to one side because that's not a topic for today. What it is, is about having a look around. Uh, we're revisiting somewhere that we thoroughly enjoyed when we came here as Zytec. It's now... Gibson Technology, I'm John Hindorf, and John Manchester is my host. Radio Lamont.com. Right, well, first left after we've come in, John, and I remember this was the engine shop last time, and guess what? It's the engine shop again. It is indeed still the engine shop. Quite a busy engine shop at the minute, actually. As you can see, we've got quite a, a variety of different engines since you last came, certainly. Um, 
the Nissan V8 LMP2 engines are quite predominant now, um, as are the Renault FR 3.5 engines, um, as are uh, the new Renault V6 uh, engine that we're doing for the SRO, uh, RSO1 uh, Renault car. That's an, interesting, uh, that's an interesting piece of machinery. I do hope that uh, develops into something rather than just a, a single make, but at the moment that it seems to be uh, uh, only in its own series. It's just such a beautiful-looking thing. Um, what, if anything, has changed in terms of the technologies you're using and the processes you're using, John, or are racing internal combustion engines uh, at the level that we're looking at here, are they a fairly fixed feast rather than a movable one? I think, you know, the engine essentially has not changed massively, but one emphasis that's really changed is the, the, the long life thing. We have to go a lot, lot further with engines now. And, you know, you look at the, the Le Mans engines now. Uh, originally, when they were designed, they were doing four, 5,000 kilometres between rebuilds. We've doubled that now. We're looking at nine to 10,000 kilometres with the same engine producing the same power. Wow. We kind of take reliability for granted. I say this a lot in, in commentary and on midweek motorsport we kind of take it for granted now but the the leaps forward and they are leaps forward that have been made in the last decade two decades we when i first start going to le mans losing half the field was you know accepted nowadays people tearing their hairs out if five or six cars have retired yeah, I think one of the main changes for that is um, the, the technology we've got available to design parts. So we can 3D model, we can do a lot of stress analysis. So in, in essentially, we can design a part, put it through a stress analysis package, and we can work out where it's going to break, if it's going to break, before it ever sees a race engine or a race car. Plus, material technology has improved vastly. We've got some huge, huge changes in material technology. So I think you put all those together, that's why we have such reliable engines now to what we used five years ago. I'll just have a wander through. I don't want to disturb anybody who's uh, working here. Now, the last time I was in here, there were engines here, but there weren't as, as many. What we've got down here on the, on the right here? Okay, well, essentially, those are the engines out the Nissan GTR. Um, that's the engine that's been developed to go in the RSO one so we're doing all of the engines for those. These three you see here are just uh, ready to go on the test bed. So we've done quite a lot of work to it. It's essentially the main production engine, but there's quite a lot of work being done to the engine to get it ready to go into a race car. So this is an, a Nissan GTR V6 yeah. engine um, with turbochargers. Twin yep, twin turbos. He looks over the edge there to see the, uh, all the gubbins on the side. It's, it's a relatively compact engine, but quite a tall engine, even though it's, uh, it's been dry sumped, of course. Yeah, essentially it is. It's a road car based engine and obviously road car engines built to go to, you know, a lot of mileage, hundreds of thousands of miles. They've got to be big, they've got to be strong. And essentially that's what they did, that's what this is. So yeah, a lot of the technology on that, ninety percent of the technology is road car technology. And we've just adapted it as you said earlier, dry something to put it into a race car. But then again, the technology that's in our road cars nowadays would have been probably unheard of even in race cars again 20 years ago less than a generation ago the kind of tolerances that we work to on road cars now i know from talking to people like mobile one about how to design oils for for road cars the tolerances in road car engines now are the same sort of levels that we were using in race car engines not so very long ago yeah i think absolutely right john and i honestly can say now i think some of the technology in road cars is out is above in front of technology in race engines really? you know road cars are seriously sophisticated pieces of kit now a lot of electronics a lot of control systems on there you know and everyone takes it for granted we get in our car we start it up we do this we do that but if you could actually analyze what's going on in there they're serious pieces of kit it used to be a few years 
ago that if you were talking about a, a race car with a stock block, a road car engine, people could get a bit sniffy about that rather than a bespoke race engine. Nowadays, with all of that technology, with all of that repeatability and the tolerances that I was talking about, does that actually, in some ways, give you difficulties in transforming a road car engine into a race car application because it's been built to run with certain electronic systems that, for example, you might not be allowed in a race car? Yeah, I think you've got to look at it in context. If you look at, you take a race engine, you know, a race engine would probably spend 80% of its life at wide open throttle, full throttle. How long does a road car ever spend of its life? Very, very little. So I think you're looking at, you know, when you take a road car engine, there's a lot of parts you clearly cannot use because they're not designed to work under those, you know, out and out stressors, loads for a continuous time. So, you know, we, we take, for instance, the Nissan engine that you see there, the Nissan V8, which is the LMP2 engine standard road car cylinder block modified for racing cylinder heads modified to racing but essentially most of the other parts in that engine are road car a uh, uh, race car designed mm. engine parts mm. because you road car would not survive to that sort of um, level of sort of stress for those, over that period of time and one of the reasons that that engine has become almost ubiquitous in lmp2 is its reliability it robs us of a bit of variety it's good business for you we kind of know where the fuel stops are going to be because the majority of the field are using it but in an open engine formula as it still is in lmp2 mm. people will gravitate to the best engine where they have a choice i think they do yeah and it's a very good engine and we've been involved in it since it was introduced in 2011 but you know i'll be totally honest it's great to see judds in there it's great to mm. see honda in there we want competition you know and the fact that Everyone chooses the Nissan engine. For us, it's great. But, you know, by all means, you know, get other engines in there. Let's have competition. Let's race against other people. So. Roughly speaking, how many of those Nissan P2 engines are you looking after at the moment around the world? Well, at Le Mans this year, we'll have 10 cars running with our engines. So that's the record for our company. So that's fantastic for us. And I think at Silverstone, we've got 10. So so round about 10 to 11 cars will be running with Zytec, uh, well, Zytec, I should say, Gibson now, yeah. uh, Nissan engines. And presumably people don't turn up with a single engine they've got a, a spare at least yeah at least i mean but you look at it john and you know nowadays uh, with as i was saying earlier you know you could probably do a full racing season on two engines you know we have situations where what, a full endurance racing season for lmp2 what in elms four hour races that's yeah. it's 20 hours of racing isn't it yeah i'll put it to you this way the engine that won le mans this year in jota that was in Le Mans for the whole week. It then went and did three or four days after that, towards the end of the season, testing before it was stripped. So they didn't change the engine between practice and qualifying in the race? Um, I'm pretty certain they didn't. They may have run the same engine on Wednesday and they may have put the other engine in for Thursday, but essentially their engine would have run Thursday onwards uh, with the same engine. Wow. That would have been unthinkable a few years ago. Yeah, Absolutely unthinkable. Let's have a quick uh, chat about this Renault Sport engine that I can see on its uh, very pretty blue gantry here. Now, that is a very, very compact V8. Yeah, it is. It's a pure race engine, purely designed for motorsport. So it's a single-seater race engine, really. Uh, we're very fortunate that Renault came to us um, back in 2011 and asked us to do an engine for them to go in their FR 3.5 car. And it was a great honour for us because it's the first time Renault had ever gone to an outside company to design and manufacture an engine to be branded with the Renault name. And that's a 
Is that a 90 degree? In fact, is that more than 90 degree V8? No, that's a 90 degree right. V8, 3.4 litre 90 degree V8, yeah. And um, I know you're always cagey about giving out numbers, but what sort of horsepower? That's 530 brake horsepower. That's adequate, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it always amazes me how compact these things are and how well packaged they are. The space between the V being utilised for, for various bits of con- componentry. And we've got some very clever black boxes again with the Gibson G uh, on there as as well everything on there comes out of here pretty much everything you see on there virtually apart from the the motorsport electrical connectors will have been designed in-house most of what you see today we've designed in-house in terms of manufacture we've probably made about 70 percent of those parts well, in-house yeah and longevity for these different kettle of fish here but in a single make single engine single seater formula um people are still cost conscious yeah absolutely i mean at the moment these engines go to five thousand kilometers between rebuild one of the projects we're working on now is we're looking to try and double that so uh, you know we're looking to try and double get, it yeah we're looking to try and get nine to ten thousand kilometers as a long-term project out of these engines for renault yeah uh, clearly all of that's great and I mean, I, I, you've just scrambled my mind, actually, John, if I'm honest. The other thing you've got to do is you've got to ensure that all these engines are the same because you can't have one that's 550 horsepower and one that's 562 or one that's 548, can you? No, that's right. We've put very, very close attention to um, the, the tolerance band on the engine. I think we're, um, I think the tolerance band is plus or minus uh, 1.5% within each other, so that's, that's quite a quite tolerance band. And the way we achieve that really is very, very tight controls over the way we build the engines, the way we manufacture the parts, just making sure everything's done within that band. And whilst that is true for this Renault Sport 3.5 litre V8, it equally applies to the Nissans that are here as well. Again, you can't have one customer, customer A, having one of your Nissan V8s that produces whatever it is, 500 horsepower, another one it's 472. No, absolutely right, and, and a lot of people don't like it, single-make racing, but we've been involved in single-make racing since 1996, so we've got a pretty good idea of what you need to do to make sure all those engines are within that tolerance band. So we, we apply the same to a P2 engine, to a Renault engine, to an Auto GP engine. This isn't the biggest room in the factory, but uh, clearly engines now are becoming a bigger and bigger part of what you do. Approximately how much percentage-wise is engine here now? I would say engine-wise here probably is 80% of what we do. The chassis is uh, 20%, but it's still a very important part, you know, and whilst engines predominantly are what we do, I think the chassis has been fantastic for this business because everyone wants to see a race car. Mm -hmm. Nobody really wants to come and look at a race (laughs) engine, but everyone wants to sit in a race car. So the car we have in reception, you know, whenever I show people around, can we sit in the car, you know? And, And a car's a car, so I think from a PR point of view, it's been extremely and will continue to be extremely important to this company. I wouldn't say nobody wants to see a race engine. Don't forget, I've got one of yours as a table, and everybody comments on that. Let's uh, not bother the guys who work. Well, we'll go over here. Uh, walking down through. See, I just I want to poke underneath things, and I, that cylinder heads down here, quite obviously. Um, shirt on the wall here. A million miles of Formula Three thousand completed uh, from nineteen ninety six to two thousand. And one. That was the old Formula 3000, the KV engine. Yeah, that was the old KV engine. Um, obviously, we started that in conjunction with engine developments back in uh, in 
uh, well, 95 really. Well, we started originally in 92 and then we obviously became a single make engine in 96. So, yeah, it was uh, the first real single make formula really, I guess, and obviously we were part of it and that was just to commemorate, uh, you know, basically achieving that uh, that milestone, which was fantastic achievement. Antonio Pizzoni is the name on there, Justin Keane. I can recognise some of these who've gone back down, uh, down through the years and... Am I, am I right in saying that the failure rate was infinitesimally small? It was, yeah. I mean, by law of averages, you're going to get engine failures. It happens. It, it cannot sort of. You cannot have 100% reliability. Impossible. But you know, we had very few engine failures. Probably two or three major engine failures in that period. Which you know, in a million miles. Yeah, it's testament to, to what we've achieved and to what you know our partners, engine developments achieved because it was a combined a combined program. So yeah, it was it was it was great. Right, cylinder heads here on the left. Recognise what they are. Very pretty. Oh. They are they are a work of art these things. Yeah, those are Renault cylinder heads. So um, obviously they're not cast here, but all of the machining, so all of these features that you sh- see on here are basically uh, done in house. Um, all of the exhaust ports, as you see, they're totally CNC machined on a five-axis machine in Latin and exhaust. So there's very little hand finishing on that. Obviously, some slight deburring, but essentially it's it's just all sort of comes off the machine as it is but again that comes down to how tech technology moved on again 20 years ago you'd have had someone hand finishing that with a with a tool somewhere but nowadays the repeatability um is outstanding because of the tolerances that you use on on the on the, the on the machines absolutely i mean you'll see when we go into the manufacturing facility a lot of the parts we make today we machine direct from the model so a lot of the things that you see being produced today, you couldn't have made those 20 years ago. It would have been impossible without the CNC really? technology. Absolutely, no question, yeah. Right, let's have a quick look over here before I go. Oh, gears, nice. I'm not going to bother any of the lads today. It, it's, I remember this from the last time I was here, John. There's, a, there's always an air of, uh, of quiet confidence here. People are getting on with stuff. Um, that, and it, it, it's... I suppose in some ways it just happens, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's like anything, John, you know, a, a company is as successful as the people it employs, and we employ some very, very good people here. You know, we've got four apprentices going through the factory at the moment, which is great, which is, you know, put four engineers into the, into the world, that's fantastic. How important is that, John? Because this, you know, over the last few years, engineering has been a, almost a forgotten art. But people like Bentley in, at Crew, yourselves other automotive and motorsport-led uh, firms are now you know, investing again, and I use that word advisedly, investing again in apprenticeships. Hugely important, John. I think what's happened is over the years, and, and, and I blame the government a lot for it, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they've sort of not invested in manufacturing, and mm-hmm. I think they've suddenly opened their eyes to the fact that, hang on, when engineering and manufacturing is doing well, the economy is doing well. So suddenly I think the dawn has come that, <laughs> oh, we need to reinvest in engineering. Because that's what we excel at. We're the best engineers in the world. There mm-hmm. is no doubt about it. And it's important, and, you know, it's important to us to put these young guys through into engineering, and we're doing that, and we're achieving something, and it's great. I, I, I found it disheartening a few years ago that, that you were talking about apprenticeships and people would look at you as if you'd mentioned a rude word. Uh, but that's where people learn, and if you don't get a good grounding, how do you get into the business? It doesn't matter whether you're doing what I'm doing, what these guys are doing here. If there isn't some way of getting through and getting trained pop- properly by people who are already doing it, you're... 
putting the finger into the wind, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah, no question. You know, and, it, and it's important. I mean, they obviously they go through the standard apprenticeship, um, which basically means them going to a college one day a week. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we have a very intense training program here. Even people that we take on qualified, you know, mm-hmm. so qualified engineers, you know, before they sort of building an engine on their own, it'll take one to two, probably three years in some cases. So we have a very, very in sort of intensified in-house training program so i think you know you get apprenticeship here you're going to get a very good apprenticeship we'll take a walk back towards the door if people aren't already in the automotive or motorsport business and their engineers coming here typically where are they they're coming from or does it tend to be people who are already in the business john no not necessarily i mean most of the people we have here none of them started out in motorsport very very few of them so we've taken them on being graduate engineers be it apprentices be it probably mechanics aerospace engineers a lot of those people have basically started out that and then they come here and it's the old man thing and isn't you know boys love playing with race cars they love playing with the race engines so i think we're very fortunate that we never have a problem attracting a high caliber of person because they want to come and play with race engines and race cars and is it still a predominantly male-based industry we hear more and more about trying to balance out the sexes in every type of job but unfortunately we seem to have a blank spot with one or two notable exceptions, I should yeah, say, yeah. Lena Gade, Lena, if you listen, yeah, no, Lena, yeah. Um, and the, the sister Tina, yeah, um, and we do seem to have a bit of a blank spot of, of getting females interested in engineering. There's no question. Um, there is a female engineer we have here. Um, she, she's an electrical engineer, so we do have one female engineer here. But yes, you're right, 99% of the and people... And that's not because you're turning them down. They're just not out there. Absolutely not. You know, I mean, if I, got, if I was advertising for a, uh, a position here and females applied and they look right, I would absolutely, no question, have any problem at all in interviewing them. You know, yeah. no problem. It's, a, it's, a, it's still something that I don't quite get the grease and room clean room on the left there we'll let them get on as we uh, are continuing our look round Gibson I've got you know I will get that wrong you know that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, John Manchester is our guide here on RadioLamont.com the inside story on the teams suppliers and circuits inside on RadioLamont.com well, as you can hear, the ambient sound around us has changed completely. Tell you the ambient air temperature has as well. It's nice and cool in here. And you could do great recording in here because yeah. the walls are all covered with uh, sound deadening, which tells me, and I'll tell you now, dear listener, that we are in an engine dyno room. And in front of us is what, John? It's, a, it's basically the V6, the Nissan GTR engine that we've been developing for going in the new Renault RS01 car. Now, how many of these dynos do you have here? We have three dynos in total. Um, we have this one, which is um, almost a transient dyno, so we can simulate laps. Um, unfortunately, oh. last week we had uh, one of the Renault engines doing a monu- Monza simulation, which would have been fantastic for you to listen to, but unfortunately today it's not. Uh, and then we have a dyno next door, which is uh, basically for the production engines, and then the one next door to that one is the uh, development dyno. And when you say transient, what, what you're talking about here is there is effectively... Not a gearbox on the end, but something that simulates having a gearbox and the loads that that would be putting on the engine, and you can put the engine through its paces as if it was under load in a car. Yeah, it's not exactly a true transient dyno, so what we can't do on this, we can't simulate overrun, so when you take 
off the throttle you've got the driving um, momentum of the gearbox and the car there we can't do that but essentially we can do everything else so you can take the data from a, a lap for instance at Monza we can put it in here and we can simulate gear changes and everything so we're almost transient but not 100%. And why do you do it that way and what are you trying to achieve by that John? Um, because what you can do is you can um, it's very good for durability so Monza 85 5% of the lap is wide open throttle so it's a very very high duty cycle for the engine and we can do lots of things we can work on gear shift strategies we can look at temperatures we can do lots and lots of things to the engine almost as it is happening real time in the car but it's not in a car it's sitting here in elegant isolation looking like an engine should it's not encased in in carbon fiber it's not getting thrown around and be being subject to g-load so you get a lot of really important data here but Presumably still no substitute for getting out there and doing some miles as well. 100% right. You know, we can develop an engine on here for hundreds of hours and we can then put it in a race car and we can suddenly have lots of problems that we've never seen on the dyno. And believe me, <laughs> that is true. So, you know, you, there's lots of things. There's the installation. I mean, I've always said, you know, you look at this dyno. It's a pretty big facility we've got here. You look at that engine sitting on there. You've got to condense all that into a race car, a very small race car. So you're putting all that into a race car and that's, you know, some of the, the challenges really of the doing being able to do that sort of condense it all down you compromise on some things and that is why we often hear about quote-unquote installation issues absolutely yeah installation issues are big i mean obviously temperature is a huge problem on cars trying to get rid of that heat you know these engines are producing five six hundred brake horsepower so you've got a lot of heat there you've got to get rid of that in a, in a very small confined area of the race car the radiator um, and also you've got the as you said earlier high g-forces the vibration mm. levels the cornering forces all of those things go towards you know causing issues in the car that they don't happen what doesn't happen on the dyno now what we've seen so far just as we've walked through the early part of our inside visit here to gibson with john manchester are internal combustion engines we're more often than not now particularly at the very high end of motorsport john talking about power units because you're talking about an ICE, you're talking about some kind of electrical hybrid system as well how does that have to change your thinking even with such basic things as putting an engine on a dyno oh it's it's a, it's a lot different now because obviously you know the the hybrid system the energy recovery systems they have to work in conjunction with the energy recovery system so for instance you know you look at the the le mans cars the audi car uh, you look at formula one cars all of those hybrid systems are now an essential part of the internal combustion engine so if you took one of them away you would have a significant difference in performance because you're losing quite a lot of power there so mm. it's very much now an integration so the hybrid system has got to Im integrate and work in har harmony with the engine no question so we're not just talking about potentially losing however many horsepower you know 100 maybe horsepower in a formula one car considerably more than that two or three hundred perhaps even more than that in an lmp1 car some of these installations these power units now they can't actually work independently of each other if you if you lose a, a hybrid system the internal combustion engine isn't going to work properly no that's right yeah as i say they, they all work in harmony with each other so one part is important as the other and you know in formula one it, it's it's been clearly proven last year if you don't get that right yeah. then you have problems and that again, you know, when we talked about the installation issues, that again adds just another level of complexity to what you guys have got to model. Um, I know that you guys have been at the forefront of, of hybrid technology in the past. I mean, is it possible to do one without the other? If you had an ICE engine that you knew was going to be part of a hybrid, uh, hybridised race car, 
do you have to have them both together to make them work and, and to do all the testing? No, I think if you took the, the IC engine and just run it independently, then it will obviously it would function probably quite well on its own. Um, obviously, if it's a turbocharged engine, it would still function with a turbocharge, uh, but it wouldn't produce the level of performance that's needed, as oh, in yeah. a Formula 1 car, to be able to, and probably the fuel consumption in some ways, it wouldn't be able to achieve the fuel consumption yeah. figures as well. So, yes, one will work independently of, of each other, but to put them together, that's when you get the performance level that you've got. Typically speaking, you mentioned that there's a development uh, dyno here. That one speaks for itself. But typically speaking, what, everything that you build here will come onto a dyno before it goes out to a customer or engines coming back in that might have had a quote-unquote issue with them will come on the dyno before they're looked at. How does, what is this room used for? Well, basically, this is essentially to, to main, its main function is to, to run an engine, to run the engine in, go through its running cycle and then performance check it. Right. But to go back to your earlier question, um, if an engine came back and it had an oil leak, it had a pump taken off, 100% it will come back onto the dyno. Really? So we'd never take any major part off an engine, be it a pump, be it um, a cylinder head or anything like that, without the engine came back on the dyno, 100% that would happen every time. And again, that comes back to what we're seeing in the engine assembly area. That's why... When you say it's 550 horsepower, it's 550 horsepower, that's 550 horsepower, and that third one down the back there is 550 horsepower. Absolutely, that's right, yeah. That's very important, yeah. All good. We'll let the, the lads get... He's dying to fire this up, and we can't do that, obviously, when we're in here. And step back out, and immediately as we get back out to uh, the corridor, you hear a, a slight difference. I'm going to peek. Oh, there's nothing in the development one, eh? There is, actually. Is there? there is something in there. That is um, a project that we're doing, which is, it can be motorsport-based. It's going to be probably something that we're looking to do for the ministry and also for road car technology. Behind there, there is a very small, little, tiny engine with an electric motor on the end of it, but I can't show you that, I'm afraid. It's radio. <laughs> Looks interesting. <laughs> Sounds great. I'll show it you when you turn the recording off. <laughs> <laughs> right, OK. Now, the last time I was in this area, all of these pallets were full of uh, engines the last time I was there. Yeah, and they still would be now, except that we have a race support truck out that's got uh, a lot of engines on it. Plus, we also have another unit, a storage unit, so a lot of those engines are now stood in the other storage units. So. I'm right in saying it. Wasn't it A1GP engines that were in here? Yes, it could well have been. I mean, they obviously are still still running as now in AutoGP, guys, so essentially the same engines. But, yeah, it would be A1 Grand Prix. Yeah. How many of those did you do? Um, we did a total of 60 engines for A1 Grand Prix. Wow. And how many of them are still running then? I would think probably in some form or another, probably 50, 55 really? engines. Yeah, yeah, we sold some, still running in AutoGP, so still a lot of engines running, yeah. That's now obviously a relatively old design, but still efficient, still reliable, and, and still turning in the performance for... For AutoGP? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's an old design. I mean, it was originally designed in 2005, but still running strong and still producing what a lot of people would say was a wonderful sound when you hear it running at the racetrack. And have you had to do anything to that over the years to keep it running and keep it current, or have, was it such a good design in the first place that it just keeps on trucking? I think it's like anything, John. As, as you run and run an engine more and more and more, suddenly problems develop that you've never seen before because you're into new territory, so you're running higher mileage onto things. So essentially you get those problems and you have to combat those problems and most of that time is just making sure that the, the, the durability of the engine keeps improving so it becomes more and more reliable if something breaks. Is it still fair to say then that those engines now, which presumably you still see back once in a while for, for rebuilds and, and such like, is that 
still providing you with valuable information that you can then take forward into the things that you're involved with now, whether the, the stock engines that we've seen, whether the bespoke race engines, or indeed future projects? In some ways, yes, um, but I think uh, a good case in point is, um, you know, you, you, you take that engine uh, out of an auto GP car and you could put it something into something like the FR 3.5 car and I can guarantee you will get problems with that installation, which we've never seen before in the auto GP because the level of performance of that car is so much higher. It puts a higher duty cycle on the engine. So, you know, for instance, if you take an auto GP car and you take an FR 3.5 car, we're nearly at 20% more full throttle than we are in an auto GP. Surely the car has so much drip and downforce. Right, got you. Engine swaps not recommended then. Okay. Another set of double doors. And this is a great smell right now I remember this from last time but remind the uh, listeners where we are now okay this is the manufacturing facility and this is also where we do the chassis um, what you can't see on radio it's, it's quite compact in here at the moment we've got a lot of cases around which are for all of the uh, the Renault engines plus also there's a lot of boxes black boxes full of spares which are going to go into our sports car truck which actually should be arrived this afternoon so you'll hopefully see that so a lot of what you see here will be going onto the truck so it doesn't normally look as, uh, as compact as this uh, you you mentioned there support and clearly the engine side of things um people have spare engines there are some things you can fix on a race engine at an event but mostly people would do a quick quick swap of a unit when you're talking about chassis when you're talking about full cars out there then you need to provide support for your customers and you do that Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, with, with chassis, it takes a lot of space up. You know, a race engine doesn't take relatively <laughs> much space up, but a chassis does. I mean, if you look over there, you've got an engine cover, um, oh, yeah. you've got diffusers, you've got nose boxes. So a lot of what you see there, in fact, everything that you see down here, so going all the way to the end of the workshop there, everything over there, all of that is going to be going to a truck. And this is to support what? This is to support our, our two main customers, Grease Motorsport and Jota Motorsport. So that's, this is going to go down to, I suppose, to Paul Ricard in the next few weeks for the WEC and the LMS test. Yeah. Everything you see here now will virtually be on the truck and will be at Paul Ricard. Uh, I think the truck leaves um, early next week. Yeah. Now, you, they take their own spares as well, presumably, So and, and they've bought a spares package. So this is, this is additional stuff, or is this stuff that you're taking down that they've got, if you like, on hold or got a call on? This is basically in addition to what they right. carry. Of course, they carry their own spares, you're quite right. But, you know, if they have a big accident, as very often happens with a race car, we can't be in a situation where they can't race because they haven't got a rear engine cover, they haven't got a front nose box. So, basically, yes, uh, you know, we carry these as backup for the, for the teams. And, of course, sometimes they've not got every bit of, every bit of uh, you know, equipment, so there may be a certain part that we'll carry that uh, they haven't got. So essentially, we have to take all of those parts on the race car and make sure we've got at least a one of them on our truck. Really? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of parts. Yeah, it is a lot of parts, yeah. That, that effectively means, then, you have to take a parts guy with you because he's got to know you know, the, the parts numbers, he's got to know that that one is a different iteration from this one, yeah. or that one's right-handed and that one's left-handed. Yeah, we've got a parts guy, Colin Cook, who, um, without Colin and his knowledge of this car, we would struggle to function. He's, he's a mind of information. Um, he probably knows as much about Le Mans, who won at Le Mans as you do, John, and that's saying something. Well, I, think, I think he probably knows more than me. And he can also recite every single part and every single no. part number. Oh, yeah, it's incredible, yeah. So, so without Colin, um, you know, we'd struggle. So, yes, it is very important important to have a good parts guy 
Do you go to every race or just the big races and the tests? Me personally, um, I will always go to Le Mans. Uh, I will, we've, got a, we've got a lot of other racing series, so I'll be going to Renault races and yeah. sports car races. So I sort of spread myself across, whereas I used to go to all the sports car events. I'll probably go to two or three now this year. And in terms of Gibson... Okay, I keep, yeah. I'm looking at the box there, it's still got Zytex Motorsport, Zytex Motorsport written on it, don't confuse me. In, part, in, in terms of Gibson technology being present, um, which of the events, I mean obviously if it's a single manufacturer series you can go and support that, but at sports cars would you go to all the ELMS rounds? You certainly go to the Monaco's, we see the truck there. Yeah, absolutely, so all of the, um, all of the ELMS races, our truck will go to every race plus Le Mans, and then at the WEC um, we've got two teams racing in there this year, uh, we've got um, Lee and we've got um, Stracker so we'll have two engineers going to every race but they'll be flying away with the team so we'll, the, 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 well, they'll carry spares but in there on the, and sort of on the, with the teams And presumably then they have the ability to call back here over a race weekend these places don't close down over a race weekend because nobody gets weekends off and should there be anything um, engine wise or parts wise that you haven't got um, there's always overnight isn't there? Trust me, that has been known and that does happen, yes. And for instance, Le Mans is always a classic. I'll probably go down on the Thursday and I can guarantee in the back of the car there'll be a lot of spares yes. carrying down, going down with me. Yeah. Is, it, is it still like the old days when we heard stories of people literally having to fly out and booting a, a second seat for a... I don't know, a damper package or a nose cone or something like that. Yeah, that does still happen occasionally, yeah. So there's a big accident and the spares aren't there or there's been a problem, then absolutely, that definitely happens and it still does happen, yeah. Amazing stuff. One interesting thing you might be yeah. interested to look Ooh. at, you're the first person outside of the company to see the new nose badge on the front of the... Oh, the look at that! The new Gibson G. Um, it's, it's, it's great to see that the, the company continues to evolve uh, it's it's been difficult times for sports car racing but on a on a broader front john are, are we on an upswing again do you think i don't know i'd like to think so obviously there's some big changes planned uh, in sports car racing for the future and i guess a lot of people don't know what the future holds from 2017 onwards so that that's a that's a bit of a concern but all we can do is keep doing what we're doing and uh, work towards hopefully still being involved in sports cars in 2017 i certainly hope so we've been involved in it since 2000 so at the moment, sports cars very, very successful, um, and let's hope it's going to be successful in the future when they make these possible big changes. You are involved in single manufacturer series. You are involved in single engine series. I have to say on a personal level that one of the things I like about sports car racing is, is, the, is the variety. But presumably Gibson could adapt if that was the way it had to go. Yeah, absolutely. As I said earlier, we've been in single mate racing since two thousand. Uh, sorry, nineteen ninety six. So yes, we could. Um, would that be good for sports cars? I don't know. I guess a lot of people have got their own views on that. I think the beauty about sports cars at the moment is you can have manufacturers competing with each other, and obviously single mate racing, certainly on the engines, takes that away. I understand there's a need to try and control costs, and I'm sure that's why they're looking to do it. But it would take some of the spectacle away and some of the interest for certain people. I think, no question. Yeah. Without being too specific about the proposed regulations from 17, because that's not what I'm here to talk about, but cost capping has saved the team money, hasn't it? It's been a budgetary nightmare for people like you guys who, who build uh, and design sports cars, but ultimately the cost cap has capped costs for teams. It has, yeah, because obviously we have to build and we have to sell engines at a certain price. 
and you can't exceed that limit. So, you know, essentially a team knows now at the start of the season what their engine budget is going to be, and it mm. doesn't normally go beyond that. Of course, if there's a, a huge accident and the engine gets badly damaged, then that's an additional cost. It doesn't very ho- often happen in a sports car. So, yes, it, it does work, but cost cap is very difficult to control, certainly on the chassis side of yeah. things. Well, do you price your engines in kilometres? Obviously, there's a price for an original unit, and then is it per kilometre after that effectively? Yeah, I mean, there's a set price. So, so the engine has to go to a, a rebuild distance now, as I said earlier, probably to, to, to eight, 9,000 kilometres. Um, so, so basically the price is fixed for that. So the price when it was being built at 5,000 kilometres is still the same price at 9,000. And that's, yeah, that, that ekes into the profit margin sometimes. Does that make it better or worse then if you have a single, single engine manufacturer? Presumably there would be economies of skill. Yeah, I think with, with single engine manufacture, I mean, of course, these engines are homologated, so they're a fixed spec. But when you get compete, people competing against each other, you know, you, you are looking to try and improve the product. You're looking to try and get better, more out of the engine bit by changing the electronics, changing mm. the ignition, the fuel, and that sort of thing. Single mate, you're not doing that. You're competing against yourself. So the essential thing in single mate racing is reliability and a good level of performance. Once you've achieved that, you don't need to do anything else. So that essentially does carry a, a reduction in cost. So, yeah, so you amortise your initial investment probably over a longer period of time. That's right, yeah, that's right, yeah, okay. over the, the period of time that it's, it's for, yeah. So whatever the tender's for. All right, let's have a wander through. You're listening to RadioLamont.com. We're inside the Gibson, yes, keep getting it right, Heindorf. Uh, <laughs> we're inside uh, the Gibson Technology Facility with John Manchester. RadioLamont.com. Ah, the unmistakable smell of turned metal. This is proper engineering. And I think it was seven or eight years ago that I was last here for one of our very first inside stories. I got so dewy-eyed about the CNC and uh, the milling machines that you very kindly, John, and thank you, it still sits in a a place of honour, gave me a a piston fastened onto the top of a bit of machined billet in the shape of an LMP2 car. That's one of my prized possessions. Now, unusually, this one's not working. Yeah, I don't know why, so I should be asking a few questions <laughs> later. Uh, yes, it normally works 24-7, this machine tool. I can only imagine it's going through a, a changeover at the moment. So uh, the cylinder heads that you saw earlier, these will be machined on this on this, uh, sorry, this machine. On this machine. It's a five-axis horizontal uh, machining centre. This technology, again... When I was at school and we were doing our work placement in engineering companies up and down the northeast, these things didn't exist. It would be several different operations, even to just clean up a cylinder head like the one we saw. Presumably, you put it in, set it away, it does it. Thanks very much. It'll buzz when it's finished. Yeah, it runs a lot of what we call lights out machining. So I think when we first got this machine, to manufacture a cylinder head from start to finish took about 48 hours, and with what we've done now, we've got that down to under 20 hours, so we can really, really make some big changes. And a, a lot of that comes through the technology that we've introduced to machine the ports. For instance, I think there's about a, a nine-hour cycle to do the ports, and that'll run overnight. So it could, quite often this machine will be running all night, in some cases all weekend, just needing the operator to come in and change over to the, the next uh, the next part. And it doesn't take holidays? It 
doesn't get migraines or anything like that. It just keeps doing it. And again, we come back to that word. I remember we used this a lot last time, and, I, and it's all coming back to me now. It's repeatability, John, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, it's all very easy to say it does this and it does that, but it takes the skill of the operator and all the production engineers to get it to the level of being able to run unmanned. It's not an easy achievement, and it's taken many, many years to develop to get to that point, but you're essentially right. It's all about now, on this machine, making sure that the cylinder head number one is exactly the same as cylinder head number 100. Yeah. All good stuff. Mm. Just getting another lung full of turn missiles. Right, let's have a look round the corner here. This is the tool carousel. Oh, the tool. Oh, now th- this is what. This is the uh, the tool carousel doesn't even begin to describe what we have here. This is, I suppose, an engineer's playground, if you wish, because every single piece that needs to be used is on a, a big chain effectively that runs round a pulley system and then I presume there's a robotic arm that somewhere takes off the one that it needs. Yeah there is there's, there's uh, 240 tools in there in total. Oh yeah. my lord. Yeah and um, inside when it does a tool change which unfortunately it's not doing at the moment a, a, a pneumatic arm does come in it takes the next tool out and it puts the next tool back in a pot so once the program has programmed all of those different stations there the machine tool will know exactly what tool is in what pot. Well, that comes down to the old thing. You do all the hard work first. Garbage in, garbage out. If somebody has put in tool 133 and actually what you need is tool 127, it ain't going to happen. No, that's right, yeah. And and what I think is sometimes difficult to understand is we've got 240 tools there. For certain jobs, for instance, on a cylinder block, it may need more than... 240 tools to do some of the features so not necessarily yeah not necessarily every single tool there will be able to do all the features of a cylinder block or a cylinder head more 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 often than not but sometimes we'd have to do a tool change there because we haven't got the the right tool in one of the pots to do it unbelievable and typically speaking how many guys look after a machine like this how many operators do you have looking after a machine when particularly if it's working 24 7 when we're using this, we, we use a single shift, so we've just got one operator on this machine. Wow. So one operator has basically been with him, this machine since it was installed, and he's looked after it, Jeff. So he's a very good operator, and it's basically his baby. He doesn't like people to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but get out of the way, then. Where are we going now? What, we do, what, yeah. we, well, what we do also here is, that's mm-hmm. probably worth talking, because we've got um, aluminium parts, which are very susceptible to temperature change, mm-hmm. um, being machined to microns, we heat and chill the coolant. So that machine there keeps the coolant to the constant 20 degrees C, 21 degrees C, all year round, so we can make sure that we're always machining the parts exactly at the same temperature. So that's a big heat exchanger, effectively. It's a big heat exchanger and a big chiller, because obviously when it's cold, it needs to heat it up first thing in the morning, but when it's been running and running and running, the coolant gets hot, so it has to chill it as well. Yeah, you see, this is the attention to detail that gets you your 9,000 kilometres between <laughs> between rebuilds. Well, it is, though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, now, isn't that a thing of beauty? Uh, another... That's the raw, raw casting, a raw for, cylinder head. Raw casting for a cylinder head, looking very, very different from the ones we saw in the engine build area. Even to my naked eye, just the places where uh, the manifolds, etc., are going to get fastened to... It, it almost looks like a... It almost looks like a different part yeah it is almost a lot of people say that if you looked at the machine part 
and then you looked at the, the, the raw casting part, they're very different, and obviously there's a big difference in weight. Essentially what this is, uh, this is on this machine for, um, it's a brand new casting, so what we do is we, 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 we machine the datums on this machine, so we'll machine the datum points, once we define the datum points, it'll then go onto the big machine, once it's got its datum points, and then be mach fully machined on the big machine. I'll tell you what the difference is, is the ones that we saw finished look like finished parts. This looks like you've just popped this off on your Airfix kit and it's kind of pretty good. It looks like a cylinder head, but it's, it's not a proper model. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, and that looks a lot, lot better than when it first comes out of the mould. I don't think we've got any here, but mm. when you take them first out of the sand core, they look very, very different to that. So there's an enormous amount of work going on at the foundry to fettle all of the flashing off to get all the part looking nice and then it's all shot blasted all over to get it to look at that level it is now so when it comes out of the cast uh, the actual cast the mold mm. it looks very very different and that's a single cast piece of aluminium yeah that's a single pass kick, uh, cast piece of aluminium it's an aluminium sand casting yeah and you get somebody locally to do that as a company called Granger and Worrell in British yeah. North they do all of our castings they've done for, so for many years and they're, they're a great company brilliant foundry to work with you yeah. uh, and that is again that's old-fashioned British engineering that's a foundry an old an old-fashioned metal worker that's right as I said earlier we're the best engineers in the world yeah I agree I agree now let's have a oh no yes uh, were all of these here the last time I was here yeah these would have been here um, all of, um, I think probably that machine tool might not have been there but right. this is one area that we're looking to expand I think one thing we've found um, over the years is um, there's a lot of manufacturing coming back to the UK as we said earlier yeah. engineering's coming back and I think there's a, there's a place in the market for offering um, the, the, the expertise the skill level we've got in here to outside companies so we are looking the area that you've seen over there we are looking to um, we're going to extend the factory and we're looking to get machine tools in there so what I want to be able to do is offer a manufacturing facility for bespoke high precision parts to outside companies be it motorsport be it ministry of defence be it automotive be it general engineering I think there's a market there for it so we're going to do essentially more work in here that's not necessarily for Gibson technology so what if somebody needed something to a massively high tolerance for I can't think of anything but you know, um, marine or and this doesn't necessarily have to be engine work it, it's it's just anything that needs very high tolerance absolutely yeah we've got a, we've got a partnership going now with a, with a company a motorsport company doing motorsport parts um, that happens to be motorsport but it could be anything you know I think what we're excel as we're not high volume production engineers mm -hmm. but we're very good sort of development machinists so we're very good at doing your one-offs your 10 offs your 20 your 30 offs but high precision sort of crying a high sort of high manufacturing level we hear a lot nowadays, John, about 3D printing. And I've seen people in motorsport doing that to do fast prototyping and stuff like that. Will that ever totally replace what we're seeing here in terms of that low volume? Not, not for the finished product, obviously, but in terms of that low volume? I think it is in some cases. Obviously, with chassis parts, it's very much um, at the forefront of sort of what they do in wind tunnels now. They rapid prototype parts, and they can put them in the wind tunnel with relatively low stress levels. Having said that, there is some aero parts on our car, which have been rapid prototype that we use. I think that's fine, but when you're looking at engines, there's a different level of stress on an engine. And I think to, to rapid prototype a part for an engine, uh, and we do use some rapid prototype parts, like cooling ducts for the engine, you know, sort of big... High, uh, you know, highly loaded parts which are made out of aluminium or steel that's quite difficult at the moment doesn't say in the future they might be able to develop uh, materials to be able to do that so it could be possible yes but at this moment in time no 
you keep an eye on things like that, clearly. Absolutely, yeah. We don't do any 3D printing because we don't have a massive requirement for it, but certainly we're always looking at what's out there because you, you've, got to, you've always got to stay ahead, yeah, no question. Lead on, sir. Ah. Just things of beauty at every turn here, whether it's a... That looks like a fuel reel of some description. Um, what's that, then? That's a lovely piece. OK, so this, this is a fuel rail. I was uh, right on that one. Yeah, this is made out of a solid bar, and that's made on that machine there, which is a, a Morris CKMT uh, five-axis turning centre. So that started off as a solid bar? That was a solid piece of bar, and it will come off that machine 100% finished like that. The only thing is it doesn't have the hole down the middle because we don't have the reach on the machine. So that basically comes out of that machine finished like that. And we actually won an award for that from Murray Seekeby. We were up against two Formula One teams, and we actually got first prize for that, so we're very proud of it. In terms of how you were using their machine? Absolutely, yeah. Brilliant stuff. This part is a hybrid part, so this is one of the very, very early hybrid parts that we machined. Um, you can probably remember it racing uh, in Petit Le Mans uh, right. with Steve Pruitt, yeah. Corsa Motorsport. Yeah. That is the part that was used on that, um, on that part for, um, for the hybrid system, yeah. Um, what about this honeycomb piece here? That is unbelievable. This is uh, about 10 inches, maybe 12 inches along. Quite a complex design. Bit of a fourth road bridge sort of up and down design. But with literally hundreds of, what, four or five mil holes drilled in it. What's, what's that for, John? Um, that basically um, is the lower engine mount. So that is completely <laughs> encased in carbon fibre. The holes are basically, obviously, to give it lightness, but also to get the resin to go through to help it to bond to the carbon. And then these points here are drilled off, and that is what mounts the engine to the tub. So basically, when you see a tub and you see a carbon fibre tub, there's probably 300 of little pieces like that bonded into it to actually contain the studs to hold things on. And again, that is the sort of thing that... I mean, can you imagine trying to make that by hand? Yeah, you probably... Well, you could. You'd make it with a jig, obviously. Yeah, but you would struggle. I mean, obviously, that's all CNC machines, so yeah. you could, but it would be very, very difficult. Certainly making it on manual machines would take you a lot longer than on a CNC machine. And also things like, well, there's a cover there, there's a trumpet there. What's this? This is lovely. Again, another, uh, some kind of end case for a... Is that a hybrid end case or something like that? Yeah, that's a hybrid end case off the Honda... Um, GT300 uh, hybrid motor. Oh, okay. So I don't know if you can feel that. Just pick, the, right. pick that up. Oh, my goodness. It's very light, isn't it? it? I expect it. I'll give you that back and I'll swap you for the microphone. Thank you, John. I expected that to be twice, twice the weight of that. Yeah, so again, that's machined from solid aluminium. Um, 100% uh, machined by the CAM system. So the CAM is a computer-aided manufacturing system that allows us to take the, the data from the model and then produce it into cutter pass to produce that part hell of a lot of wastage if you made that from a single piece or these things aren't cheap then no they're not i mean those are the swarf bins there so all of the parts go into those swarf bins and then from there basically it gets all weighed in as scrap so it's recycled so we don't waste anything right okay this is interesting this is um these are these are titanium disc bells so these basically are for the lmp2 car so these have been roughed out on that machine. They've gone away to be um, stress relieved. So that's why they're looking all discoloured. Yep. And then they're going on to this machine now, which Duncan's machining, and they're going to be finished machined on there. Oh, and sorry, what was that, did you say? These are uh, disc bells. So these basically go onto the hub and then they mount the brake disc on. So the ah. brake disc is mounted through there, so you've got the carbon fibre brake disc on there. How brilliant. And that's titanium, is it? I've got yeah. to have a little... Still quite heavy because, obviously, it's not fully machined, so... 
think that's the front one and this is the rear ones. Beautiful piece of stuff. And they've been, they've, as you said, they've been heat treated, you can see that. Yeah, what well, is that they, they started off as complete billets and then the machine with this profile, so there's, there's a surface left on all of here. We then have to, we have to stress relieve them to stop them distorting and then they'll be finished machined. So every, every surface you see on here will be machined over again. There's material on that, so more material will be taken off. And when you say stress relief, that's normally put through a heat cycle of some description, Yes, is it? it is, yeah. It basically gets all the stresses and it changes the grain structure of the metal to, to normalise it, to make it more stable. Because when you start to machine big pieces out, the material, it puts stresses into it, it bends. So that's stress relieving it now to ensure that it doesn't deform when we finish machining it. it you're talking quite complex, not only quite complex procedures on the parts in terms of machining them, but you, you guys have got to understand these bits of metal effectively at a molecular level oh absolutely yeah yeah i mean you know and it's it's we develop a method so when we're machining a new part for instance when we first did these disc belts we develop a manufacturing method and we're always looking to improve that and make it better and change it so it's a method <coughs> excuse me that we develop ourselves to to actually be able to produce the part in the most economical and sort of high precision way we can now you, you're talking about an lmp2 uh, car of course where quite a lot of the things are and mandated are materials mandated so you know the the old joke about audi building everything out of unobtainium these are titanium but you can't use anything more exotic it, it is written into the, the spec of the car no we could use what we wanted we could make them out of gold if we wanted but they'd have to be within the cost cap so that's the difficult wow. <laughs> so you wouldn't do it because you'd lose money so these these have been titanium and they were they were developed as titanium parts because we used to use aluminium and um, that that created a lot of problems so the titanium was there to to give us the strength to ensure that the dispel has the durability and obviously titanium is a lot lighter than steel so and you you're dealing with huge numbers in terms of temperatures on on disc brakes? Oh, colossal, yeah. I mean, uh, you, you're looking at probably 900 degrees. I'm not quite sure of the actual disc temperature. You, you're probably speaking to the wrong person in terms of that. But, yeah, very, very hot. I mean, you've seen these things at Le Mans, I'm sure, no doubt. When you put the brakes on, they'll go red at the end of the straight or even white on the tips. That's hot. So, so these things are in a very unfriendly uh, area of of the car and presumably they have to react in a similar way to the, the the carbon discs that are on them yeah absolutely so they got through a lot of a lot of heat cycles so you know by that i mean they're getting extremely hot to extreme temperatures to then being cooled by air as it gets down to the end of the straight to suddenly be subjected to another huge yeah. in, in input of temperature so they're continuously going through very very serious heat cycles swap out brake discs do you swap out these at the same time or do they stay on behind the the discs as they're changed? Um, well, we'd never change, change discs in a 24-hour race unless there was a problem. You keep the same discs on all the time. Uh, and these will be a life component, so obviously the brake discs don't have an infinite life as these do, but you wouldn't necessarily put a new disc bell on when you're putting a new disc, uh, disc, back, uh, disc on. Wow. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. I learn so much when I come here. <laughs> I really do. Uh, we're at uh, Gibson, by the way, Gibson Technology. It's the new name for Zytec, in case you're wondering. John Manchester, once again, uh, showing us round. And through the square window here, for those <laughs> of you... Square two square windows. for those of you of, of a certain age. Now, this is the last time I was here. This was one of the measuring 
the laser measuring stations? Yeah, this is um, basically inspection. So in here, we've got a temperature-controlled environment, so it's kept at a constant temperature. Humidity is kept at a constant uh, humidity level all year round. And we've got two CNC CMM machines here, which are coordinate measuring machines. And all of the parts we make, be it the parts we've made here, be it the parts we've made out, will go through here. So this is quality control. So this is one of the most important parts of the factory. If there is, um, well, whether it's made inside or outside, how many of a, of a batch do you check over for validity in terms of, of, of getting your, your, dimes, your dimensions right? It depends what the part is. For instance, on that machine there, you'll see a crankshaft. Yeah. Um, if we make 100 cranks, we'll 100% inspect 100 cranks. Oh, really? Yes, absolutely. Pistons uh, will come very close to that. Um, certain features on every piston will be measured. I mean, if they're not measured in here... Um, we'll probably do a percentage out of a batch they'll be measured in engine build. So certain parts, cylinder heads, crankshafts, con rods, um, gears, they'll be 100% inspected. Less stressed parts, for instance, um, top hats, washers, we'll probably do a percentage. So we'll do 10% in a batch of maybe 100, 300, 400. And how, Im- I mean, clearly that is absolutely key, again, in delivering that 500 horsepower, 500 horsepower, 500 horsepower. And... Over the years, then, as the technology has changed, do you see rejection rates getting lower and lower? Um, and some, um, sometimes, yes. I mean, it depends. If it's a new part and it's a, a brand new part with a new manufacturing method, you might have a, a high percentage to start with of there being problems on there. But um, what we do is, you know, inherently we make a lot of the parts in-house and, of course, we do sometimes have problems with it. Um, for outside suppliers, we work very closely with our suppliers, so we make sure that suppliers understand what we want, the levels we're at, uh, and then they have to achieve those levels. And we work with them. If there's a problem with it, we wouldn't necessarily say, right, that's it, you're finished, we're going to another supplier. We'll work with that supplier to yeah. try and get around the problem. And, and I presume then as well, when you're doing things like that, working with outside suppliers, you have to kind of tell them, what you're doing so you've got to say right this is for a racing car therefore it's going to be this that and the other do you specify the material or are you led by them if they're a particular specialist in an area it depends what it is if it's um, very much a specialist um, sort of manufacturing technique required then we might go to an outside supplier and ask their advice but nine times out of ten we'll specify the material so all of our drawings will have materials on there the heat treatments that they need to achieve that sort of thing um, very important part of the business then, um, checking everything in here. You've got a couple of machines there, what, a couple of operators? Or? Yeah, we've got two inspectors in here, um, so basically both operate the CNC machines. We also do a lot of manual inspection, mm-hmm. um, so a lot of the parts are manually inspected. Not everything goes onto the CNC machines, so uh, you know we'll still use traditional methods, slip gauges, sign bars, micrometers. Really? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Oh, it's good to see proper engineering. And, and do you, how's your key performance indicators, KPIs? Everybody, everybody talks about that. Is that something that you keep an eye on? Um, yeah, yeah, we're always looking to, to try and improve the way we do things and we're basically, you know, looking to... I think like anything, John, these days, you know, everyone wants to try and reduce costs. They want <laughs> to try and look at things, make things more efficient. So we're always looking the ways to try and improve things and we're looking the ways to reduce costs. But obviously what we have to be very, very careful of is... You know, you can make things cheap, but you can introduce problems. So you've got to be very careful. It's a fine line. It's a, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Just before we leave this, just for those who are listening, if you needed to go out and buy another one of those big machines, um, what sort of investment would that be in this day and age? To buy a machine like that with all of the tooling and everything else that goes with it is probably a million pounds. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I could hear people asking 
Oh, yes, look at this. It's nice to see... It's nice to see that there are bits of the motorsport heritage all around. And just next to the staircase up onto the mezzanine level, which I seem to remember was part storage last time I was here, um, is a poster which has um, a whole host of drivers' names from A1GP. Uh, this is from July 2004 to May 2008. 169 of the ZA1348 engines were built. 474 1,244 championship kilometres covered. Uh, that's 11.8 times around the world. Three and a third million gear shifts from the Zytec EGS system and 7,018 power boost events. That Those numbers are pretty impressive. Yeah, they are, yeah. And I think it's, you know, you take a lot for granted and then when you actually put it down in black <laughs> and white, like, yes. it's like, wow... And I think the the comical one that we did, um, it, we did it for A1 Grand Prix and presented it to them. We also put on there how many pork pies and how many cups of tea we've had as well. So. <laughs> and that exceeded 3.3 million. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, great stuff. Is it important, John, that, to remind the guys here that what they're doing right in front of them is part of a, a bigger... Uh, a part of a bigger project is part of a, a whole and when they see numbers like that it, it makes them realise what the and, and probably you guys as well make you realise what you've actually achieved yeah I think it is um, you know and, and it's not until you actually see that and you see it written down like that you think geez, that was mm. pretty impressive but it's something that you're doing every day so you take it for granted and when you actually look at it you think wow you know and as I say to the guys many many times what we're doing today and what we do tomorrow and what we'll do at Le Mans this year we're making history Mm. Every time you go to the, you go to do your event at Le Mans, you're making history. Everyone that's part of it, we're making history, and we should be proud of that because a lot of people take it for granted. And we are making history. We're part of history. Everything we've achieved over the years is part of written into history, motorsport history, and it's important. We're at Gibson Technology. John Manchester is our host, and we're going for a little walk, and we'll be back with more in a few moments' time. The inside story on the teams, suppliers, and circuits. Inside on RadioLeMond.com. Ah, the unmistakable sound of an engine on the other side of some very thick glass. Lee is between us and the uh, Nissan GTR engine, I think that is, yeah. that uh, is sitting there just being warmed up before it does its power test. We're in the control room uh, here at Gibson technology and John Manchester is alongside me. Well we were in next to that engine a bit earlier on and now it's getting a bit of a workout. Yeah it is, yeah it's gone through its running cycle so it's just undergoing a power test. Um, as you can see, I don't know if you can remember last time you came um, this, is, um, this is a turbocharged engine, we wasn't running turbocharged engines then so this is very quiet compared to a normally aspirated engine. If we had one of the, uh, the V8s on there it would be screaming a lot louder than this, it's muffled with the sound hence a lot of the reasons they've got the same problems in Formula 1 there. And uh, the reason for that, of course, is that the exhaust is going to turn the turbocharger and therefore uh, some of the energy is taken out of it before it gets to the exhaust tips. That's why uh, turbocharged engines are uh, somewhat quieter than normally aspirated ones. However, it's not got a bad sound, in fairness, and it's it's working up to, to temp now. Typically, how long does this, uh, this whole process take, John? Normally, the running cycle on these is probably about an hour and a half to two hours. Oh, really? Yeah, um, because this, don't forget, is a lot of road car-based sort of technology, so we're going through a slightly different running cycle than we'll do a pure race engine. And then we'll undergo a power test, which normally would probably take about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. 
Well, as the revs are going up and down. So, Lee, what were you looking at there, Lee? You had a, a big stare in there. Was something something you're not happy about, or? Yeah, it's just one of those. Your eyes are always everywhere. Just keeping a, a lookout, hopefully, to catch something if it goes wrong. Um, have you ever had one that's gone pop? Touch wood, never. I've heard it's pretty scary. Uh, that I don't know. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and long may it steer that yeah, way. Hopefully, yeah. How long you been working here, Lee? Uh, seven years now. And he's not listening. You get, you get trit all right here, you enjoy your job? Yeah, no, it's good, it has its moments, like every job, but no, it's good, I really enjoy it, good people work here. And what were you doing before you were here? I was a uh, main dealer mechanic, oh. so sort of worked up through the roots, sort of got a, a well, good, a really good job here now, so it's, it's good. I'll let you get back on, um, don't want to spoil your 100% record, do we? Be a bit of a nightmare. Um, Yes, I've I've spoken to people who've had them go pop in dining rooms and it makes a bit of a mess. But I suppose better there than, you know, having a, an issue with a customer out on the track. But the idea is you want to avoid that anywhere, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a very good reliability record. And as I said earlier, you know, law of averages, you will have problems from time to time. But uh, we always try and keep that to zero. But uh, obviously, it's not always possible. When you're talking about running in, in the old days, if you, bought, if you were fortunate enough to be able to afford a new car... Or, or even still now on motorbikes. My last motorbike, I had to do, you know, 500 miles at no more than certain revs, and then increase the revs, increase the revs. Indeed, some motorbikes now that you buy have a, a built into the ECU that it won't let you use uh, more revs. What is that actually doing nowadays? Because we've talked about manufacturing tolerances being so close. It's not like you're not taking the sharp edges off metal anymore. Eh? No, I think the main the main things are it's bedding things in. So th- things like the piston rings, the pistons, the bearings, you're making sure that they bed in. So to get an engine to work properly, you've got to get the, the piston rings to seal within the cylinders. And really what you're doing when you're running an engine in, you're bedding those in. So you're getting the, 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 the piston rings essentially running and taking any high points off, uh, running smooth onto the bore. So essentially it's going to sort of compete with all the compression within that every time it goes bang. The advances in lubrication technology also play a part in that. I've also heard it said, this is something I brought up with uh, one of our interviews with Mobile One uh, from, from last year, is that fully synthetic oil actually protects so well, it's rather more difficult to run in engine parts now on, on fully synthetic. Yeah, possibly. I mean, we, we certainly don't notice that on race engines, but as you said earlier, the, uh, the sort of introduction of fully synthetic oils has made a huge, huge step forward in terms of durability and making parts last longer, no question. And we've not used anything but fully synthetic oils for the last 15 years, I would think, really. Yeah. And, and do you presumably have to keep uh, right up to date with any developments that the lubrication companies make and they're talking to you about developments that you make because again as the tolerances become less and less it puts different stresses on the lubricants yeah absolutely yeah um, you know you look at what we achieve out of oils now at Le Mans for instance I mean it's phenomenal what we can go to in terms of uh, distance on oils and temperatures that we put into it it would have been impossible years ago and that's because of synthetic oils and obviously the, the technology that the oil companies have put in and I think there's one thing that people sort of lose sight of is just how much technology there is in an oil these days yeah. it's huge and that's not just engine oil we're talking about gearbox and 
diff oil and, and, and in fact, things like greases as well for bearings. Absolutely everything, yeah. You know, oils has, has improved significantly, as a lot of things have over the years, and, and it's, um, it's incredible what we can achieve, but sometimes quite incredible what we take for granted as well, I think. Yeah. We do take oil for granted, and it's not until you have a problem with oil that you realise just what a job it's doing when it's working right. Can, can it make a difference in terms of performance, John? Absolutely, yeah. We've worked uh, many, many years with uh, oil suppliers. We have um, a technical partnership with Motul, uh, and we've worked on certain oils with Motul that have got um, friction reducing and additives in there and you, there, is, there is horsepower gains to be made I mean the faster you go with an engine the, the more friction it generates so the bigger advantage you get um, but with, even with engines running to nine nine and a half thousand RPM you will still get advantages out of low friction oils definitely yeah. So when Formula 1 engines were revving around in 19 there were significant gains to be had there if you had a better a better oil technology than the, the guy next to you. Definitely, I mean, one of the main one of the main things with Formula One in those days was getting friction to be as little as possible. Obviously, you can't eliminate it totally, but the friction those engines produced at nineteen thousand RPM was phenomenal. So, a lot of work went into component development, making parts life to, uh, light to reduce friction, but also at the same time, a lot of development went into the oars as well. Definitely, and still does today. Yeah. Right, Lisa, gone in with his torch. Go yeah, come on, let's have a quick look. I want to find out what he's. Uh, Oh, now there's a bit of difference in the heating here since the last time I was in. We love turbochargers. Lee with his uh, torch having a good look underneath. Just shout up, Lee. What are you looking for there? Oil leaks and things like that? Oil leaks, water leaks. Just sign of things starting to come loose. Just trying to catch them. See the last bottle before it goes out the door. So, last set of eyes take it. All good. Thank you, John. Kept me a microphone cable away from a very hot exhaust pipe there. We'll leave Lee to that. I think that one might have passed. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, stick stick the hand off seal of approval on that one. (laughs) So, how much work do these dinos get then? I suppose it depends depends on which part of the season you're at. Before the start of the season, it'll be absolutely chock-a-block in there, is it? Um, To be honest, John, I guess they're running most of the time now. Um, Many years ago, we used to have sort of a winter period, if you like, where we wasn't busy. But with the amount of work we have going through here now, dinos are running all year round, really. So there wouldn't be many days where an engine doesn't run on a dyno um, during sort of the week. Definitely not. We bemoan the fact that there's no off-season now. I think my last event last year was I got home about the 22nd or 23rd of December and we're off to Dubai on the 2nd of, of January. I mean, that's bad enough for us, but for you guys trying to do the logistics of a business like this, that's, with a global marketplace as well now, that, that must be quite a challenge. Oh, it's huge, yeah. We start planning for, um, you know, we're probably planning for um, Le Mans next year at the, as soon as Le Mans finished this year. Really? So, yeah, we're planning all year round. And the logistics of taking people abroad and moving kit around is huge now. Massive, mm-hmm. massive amount of logistics. Now, last time I came here, this was R&D, and I wasn't allowed to talk about much we saw in here. Um, What's it, what's it doing now? Okay, so this is where we build all of the wiring harnesses. So most of the wiring harnesses are built here. They're designed in here. They're manufactured in here. Um, they're basically serviced in here. So all of the bits that you've seen with um, plugs on the end, wires on the end, will have been built in here. And presumably, because most people in the motorsport do, you work these to military spec or above? Yeah, I mean, the connectors now, they used to be military connectors, they're now called motorsport connectors. So <laughs> they're the same level of military connector, but they're a bit cheaper for motorsport, and they're oh. black now as opposed to being green. So. <laughs> 
is this another area of the business where you can outsource and, and do a bit of outside outside work rather or are you the guys and ladies here just too busy working for Gibson? No, we do do work for some of our customers. So um, some of the chassis customers that need harnesses, we do make some of those harnesses here. In fact, Sash at the end is actually working on a customer harness there um, for one of our customers. So um, as well as doing our own parts, we do do some, um, some parts for outside companies, but probably not as much as we do for our own stuff. And again, the complexity of what is going on here because of the systems within racing cars. Now, this will have changed beyond compare in a relatively recent time. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, because of electronics on cars now, um, they're very, very sort of important. And obviously to make electronics work and make sensors work, you've got to have wiring harnesses. And if your wiring harness fails, then, of course, the car stops because the engine stops. So, yeah, they're very important. Yeah. Do you work on a sort of a modular system so that you can break out certain parts of the loom if there's a, an issue? To a certain extent, yes, you can't. It's not possible to do with everything, but you know there is there is sort of an ECU harness which is mm. separate to the engine harness, separate to the chassis harness, the gearbox harness. So yes, to a certain extent, um, there is, but it's not obviously possible to do with every single piece. We're working with carbon fibre uh, cars mostly nowadays. Um, do you does that mean that the it necess, necessitates then um, the loom being the return earth for all the the components as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, a lot of the um, the car now and a lot of the engine is designed to carry the wiring harness. So you'll mm. look at when you're designing a new car, you'll look to incorporate a wiring harness. Right? Many years ago, you designed the car, then think, how are we going to get this <laughs> wiring harness in? Nowadays, it's very much an integral part. So we do look at areas to put harnesses in, to, bond, uh, to strap harnesses to. Yeah, it's very important. But you can't earth components to a, a carbon fibre chassis like you can to a, a, a steel monocoque. So that presumably gives you some issues as well. Yeah, it can do. Obviously, you earth a lot of parts of the engine because the engine is a pretty good earth point and that goes back to the battery. So a lot of the parts are either earth to the gearbox or to the, uh, to the engine itself. Good. Yeah, Very good. All right. Uh, we'll move on a little bit. Always fascinates me. This is the stuff that you can't see and that if it goes wrong, you're in real trouble. And yeah, come on, I'll have a quick look. It, it does scare me slightly. The beeping in here is it's not my pacemaker. This is this is test. And and you are, sir? <laughs> I'm Sasha Potter. Hello, Sasha. Um, and this is uh, a loom for what? It's for Ligier. Ah, okay, great. Right. And uh, you've been here how long? God, how long? Too long now, is it? Twenty-three years. Oh, perfect. So. This your job then. How much has it changed over twenty twenty three years? <laughs> what be, literally beyond recognition? Yeah, well, I, I first started working with uh, the KV engine in Formula three thousand. Mm. I started off as a sub assemblies engineer, building cylinder heads and pumps for the three thousand engines, the KV and uh, the MF three hundred eight Mugen engine really? back in the day. And in terms of the electronic side of things, did you start off where you were hand wrapping harnesses yourself with tape? I actually not here, right. and the, the the previous job I had, yes, we right. were doing it with tape, yeah, and obviously now it's moved on to Raychem System Twenty Five, which is pretty much industry standard now, which is it? pretty much industry standard, yeah. I think one thing to to point out that Sash is actually he does this, but he's multi skilled if you like, because he's ah. a track support engineer as well. So he'll go to the the races, the and he'll do track support, looking after the engine. So as well as doing this, he'll he'll do sort of engineering support and he'll run the test beds as well. So it is. 
uh, is that common to um, a number of staff here, John, is it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's quite important to have people to be able to do a variety of skills because, you know, you can't always depend on one person. And, it's, and it helps Sash, you know, if he's at the track and he's got a wiring problem, suddenly he's got a lot more confidence and a lot more technical ability to be able to fix the problem as opposed to somebody that's never seen a harness. So it is yeah. important, yeah. I've just made the mistake of looking behind one of those connectors <laughs> and it scared the living whatnots out of me. Um, were you a race fan? Uh, and interested in motorsports, Sasha, be- before you came into the business? Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a blessing or is it a curse? Um, I don't know, really. So I, I think it's, as I've got older, I think it's a bit more of a busman's holiday now than yeah, it yeah. used to be. But no, I still enjoy it. I still get the, the hair still stand up on the back of my neck when I hear the start of a race or an engine fire up. Good so, bad. yeah, I've still got it. Bad day to race tracks better than a, a good day most of the places still, away. Eh? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... There's people that are killed for a job like this. So, yeah. what can you say? Good luck, mate. Keep on. All right, thank, uh, thank you very much, Sasha. Yes, sir. <coughs> I always like to look on shelves. That's that. the steering wheel here. Oh, oh mm. that's, that's an auto GP car, I believe. Dave, is yeah. that right? Correct, yeah. Hello, Dave. How are you? Hello, John. <laughs> um, Dave can explain about Tell it. me about this then, Dave. You, I'll let you keep it in your hand because that's probably about six this, or seven grand's worth of it. Yeah, this is, a, this is a, quite a, an old. Uh, old school uh, Auto GP uh, steering wheel, which was originally on the A1 Grand Prix cars. Um, so the primary functions of it are upshift and downshift, um, the 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 Pi system dash, and the communications and uh, pit pit systems to the cut for, to the back from the driver to the pits. Now that is would now in a single seater be thought of as a fairly basic wheel i was driving a gt3 car at the weekend that was just as complex as that yeah absolutely yeah it is it is um uh, it's it's beautiful in its simplicity (laughs) (laughs) what are the what the difficulties of getting electronic systems then to work on something that's also got to be connected to a to a a, a steering column because it it always seems sort of counterintuitive to me yeah um strength and uh Strength, strength in the wiring, yeah. and well-planned out electronics, mm-hmm. and also um, trying to put in some vibration resistance. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Those switches are going to take. I mean, particularly paddles on the yeah. switches for the paddle switches. They're only micro switches, of course. But you know, we know from anybody who's got a, a computer game back at home, they eventually wear out. <laughs> yeah, the, these actually have proved to be very, very, uh, very, very successful and very long-lived. I think they were slightly over-engineered for the job. <laughs> <laughs> it's never a bad thing. No, but when you look at when you look at sort of. Uh, Modern formula cars and also whatever they they are um, not as en- well engineered as this. They've got obviously you've got micro switches and much mm. much sm- smaller switches in than than these have. They, but yeah, so that's the, that's the thing really. That is a thing of beauty still though. I do <laughs> I do like it. Thanks, Dave. Keep on keep on the, the good work. Thank you. Thank you. So okay, we're going through to the, d- the design office now. So everything you've seen today, mm-hmm. this is where it would have started life. All right and. Uh, Let's hope there's something secret that I can't talk about. Ah, yes, I remember this place before. Looking out onto the car park, these guys get to see all the visitors before everyone else that comes in here. Um, and then run and hide. <laughs> right, it's fairly quiet in here today. Typically, how many people would be working in here? Um, I think there's about six people in here in total. Um, that everyone's in at some part. I think one of the guys is on holiday, but the majority of people are in, so they'll be around the factory looking at parts or doing something uh, t- to do with what they're, uh, they're working on. And literally, could this be anything from a tiny widget up to, what, a 
monocoque of a car? Yeah, I mean, majority of what you've seen will have been designed in here. So um, obviously the connectors, for instance, haven't been designed yeah. in here, although the wiring harnesses will be designed in the electrical department. But all of the mechanical parts, all of those parts we saw in the machine shop, mm-hmm. they will have started life in here. They're created in here, yeah. All right, so I'm going to have a wonder and uh, have a look. Good afternoon, sir. Hello, sorry, sorry, to, uh, sorry to bother you. Uh, introduce yourself, sir. Uh, I'm Ian Lovett. I'm technical director here. I think you were here I all those years yes. ago when, when I came here. Hybrid motors and all sorts uh, of other things. Yeah, all sorts of things I couldn't talk about in, <laughs> in, in those days. Um, well, about, I think I was about seven or eight years ago since I've, yeah, I've been here. It's, uh, it's been a very interesting time in, in motorsport. From what you see here, I mean, how's, it, how's the, the business looked in the, in the last seven or eight years? Pretty good. Since uh, we last spoke, we've picked up the Renault World Series engine contracts, plus a couple of other biggish ones, and the, the Nismo thing mm. was, was new to us since then as well, which has been uh, a good project. We enjoy working with Nissan. Uh, good product, good engine. Yeah, it's been good for us. You guys sit at computer screens for a lot of the time. Is it important that you have, literally as well as metaphorically, a broader view of the business and the sport than that? Yeah, we have a policy of trying to get the uh, the engineers out at the track. They mm. do some track support work. They get the experience of working with our customers out in the field, and we feel that brings them on, makes them better engineers overall. It gives them a feel for the uh, the finished product. You get to see the hull. Exactly. Th- there is a danger, isn't there, if you're sitting designing widgets all day and... The, the, you don't get the sense of, of how that's interacting with the rest of whatever that is, be it a washing machine or a, or a formula car. Yeah, exactly. You need to understand what the important aspects of what you're doing are and how they're going to work when they get out on the track. Exciting time at the moment, particularly in Formula One, World Endurance Championship and sports cars, a lot of technology coming in. How does that change what you guys do, or is it just a question of, of keeping across that new technology and, and being able to incorporate it? Yeah, well, we cover quite a broad spectrum of different technologies. Mm. We do the cars, the engines, the wiring, control systems, rebuilds, track sport servicing. It's difficult to be an expert in absolutely everything. Correct. So having a, a, a broad take on everything that's going on, it, yeah, it's a challenge. And you have to look at regulations as well, I presume. The, the regulations are up on my screen just this morning, just, <laughs> just, just, just to refresh my memory on uh, when we have to get the engines sealed for specific championships. But yeah, uh, new regs every year keep keep on top of. And the homologation is another aspect of it. The homologation booklet for our uh, particular car this year is 87 pages. Mm. Um, we bandy this board. word around, homologation. Um, it happens with road cars. It also happens in some forms of, of racing. Most of the top forms of racing have a form of homologation. Or the, but essentially, that's a technical passport, isn't it? Yeah, it defines the car in a f- sufficient level of detail to allow the scrutineers to determine whether it's in compliance or not. And so does that mean that all of that paperwork has got to go with every car to every event? Yes. So there's a, a document that exists for our specification of car, and that changes every year if we re-homologate or um, there are certain tweaks. There's a slightly different specification for Le Mans, as you know, for the Le Mans Aero kit, and that specification has to be right. The car has to be built and maintained to that specification. That means working with the rules makers, the series that you're racing in, and your customers as well, of course. Yep, customers need to be aware of, of the state the car needs to be in, um, and it's, it's the onus is upon them. Once the car leaves here and goes to our customers, then, uh, yeah, they're responsible for maintaining that. 
It's a hell of a job <laughs> to keep one top over. Do, do you have to be a fan of the sport? Do you have to be at least mildly interested to be able to do the types of jobs that, that's going on here? Yeah, the enthusiasm is is a is a basic requirement. I think um, you'd be you'd be mad to to want to do this if you weren't really passionate about what you do. Have you had have you met people in the past who are very good at what they do but don't have? that passion and, and therefore it either affects their uh, um, effectiveness in the job or just the ability to understand what's going on around them we, we we have experience of people like that but they tend not to last in the business for very long yeah and how long have you been at this now 23 years that's a lot of enthusiasm <laughs> mate. <laughs> certainly is long may I continue thanks for talking to us I'll let you get back to your regulations uh, <laughs> this is um, this is Ollie Ollie's, hello Ollie uh, responsible for a lot of our chassis design he's a chassis engineer so I'm sure he's uh, happy to talk to you about some things on the chassis oh excellent I won't ask you anything uh, top secret or anything like that but again just talking to Ian there about regular rules and regulations and things like that that's clearly something that you've you've got to keep up with and a lot of that of course in, in the chassis terms is uh, is down to safety as well yeah there's um yeah a lot of safety stuff especially this year um so we've got the new extractable seats and lifting eyes which um definitely proven a challenge the lifting eyes you know not allowed to drill holes in the the monocoques to fit them they've just got to basically be bonded on Mm -hmm. for us in our in our case so getting the car to still it's you know it's an old car now ours Mm. and getting it to fit amongst amongst the new rules that they're introducing is quite a challenge but um yeah, it's it's more difficult when the rules. I mean, this, I could show you the date on the the last set of regulations, nineteenth of December. Wow, it's quite late in the day, so it's difficult to respond to that because we've already committed to sort of various programs. Like we, this year, we committed to an aero program mm-hmm. um, a long time before nineteenth of December, and then there are a few surprises in de- December, and we're now sort of trying to catch up. And it's a bit of a race race for sort of Paul Ricard and Silverstone to get everything done in time. We always talk in motorsport about very compressed timescales that mm. can't be moved. And certainly when I've worked in the business and we've had people in from the uh, OEMs, you know, if they need to put a car launch back by two weeks, then it's probably not great PR, but they can do it. Because you can't. Because no. when the lights go out at the start of the season, your cars have got to be on the grid. Yeah, that's right. We just we just lose more and more sleep. That's all that happens. <laughs> we just more, more nights, more late nights. You know. Yeah, it's it's very draining at this time of year. I think so. Sort of October time through to the first race of the year um, is yeah quite. A, it can be quite tiring and tough, but uh, it's normally all all been made worthwhile. Sort of come Silverstone and. Uh, and we always joke here, sort of after Le Mans, you know, things that we like to do when the rush is over, because uh, Le Mans, also the rush. In reality, we have a little breather after Silverstone or whatever, and then, and then we all laugh and joke about, well, after Le Mans, we'll have time to do this and do that, and then, in reality, after Le Mans, yeah. <laughs> what were you doing before you came here? Um, university. Right. So, so, you, this, yeah. so this is your first proper job. Straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and is it what you wanted to do, Ollie? Yeah, I've been a fan. I first went to Le Mans when I was seven years old. Oh, top um, yeah, I'm a I'm one of those hardcore. I go every year, every year I could. Um, mm-hmm. Exams and things got in the way for a bit, but as yeah, soon that's, as I, re- that's really annoying, isn't it? <laughs> but um, yeah, I've I've always been following the sport. I've sort of got a passion for it, um, especially in, it's endurance race and it's Le Mans. It's that it's uh, for me. There's more going on. There's more 
it's just yeah I've, I've always really loved it so this is a dream job for you then isn't it it is yeah um, it gets tested at times <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah well I was you know but, you see uh, yeah. I, I, I say that, that's what I said before I was talking one of the other lads you know is it a blessing or a curse to mm. be a fan because you know clearly this is this is how you pay your mortgage so mm. you've got to make sensible decisions about what you're doing but ultimately you know that there are people out there who would give very important parts of their anatomy to be doing what you're doing. That's, a, that's right. It's the same with me, John. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Every now and again, I, I get stressed like everyone does and you think, oh, I wish I was doing something else. But then you, you know, you sit back for a bit and you think, actually, this is pretty good. Mm. Um, you know, Travelling around, just going motor racing. It's well, I was going to say, you get to go to some of the races as well. Yeah, I've um, worked closely with the teams. Um, so we, we go to the races, help them with chassis setup and things like that. Um, and is that important not just for you as an individual, but for the relationship between Gibson Technology and their customers? Yeah, absolutely. We, I think, of the P2 manufacturers, I, I suspect we work most closely with the teams. We, I think, we gain, we both gain. So we need to keep up to date with how they're running the cars. Um, you know, if they're doing anything differently that may benefit the next time we want to make a change. So we. Just oh, so you can take things back from the teams and go. Ah, right. If you're going to do that that way, how about I do this this way, and that'll make your life a bit easier. Yeah, that's right. So we we need you know just say say the setup of the change will is very change with time um, to suit the tyres. Mm-hmm. So that will that will then play back into you know how much ride height sensitivity we can get away with you know where we need to be on that that sort of thing. So it's a because we we can because we work so closely with them, we can sort of keep that feedback loop quite short. So that sort of plays into the updates and, and things like that. So. From your point of view, so many people that I see in all parts of the industry, but particularly in motorsport, they deal, as I was saying now to, to Ian there, with very small parts. They never get to see the whole. It must be very satisfying to go out and deal with a whole car. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes all those long nights worthwhile, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So... You know, I've done a bit of race engineering, and and you so you speak to the drivers directly, and you you can then I come back here the the day after the race weekend, and we start you know scheming up some ideas and things to sort the problems out. Mm. It's, um, I can't think of anything where you know you you're scheming, sketching um, all the way through to it's cause pretty much clo- it's as close to driving the car as you can get really you know you're you know race engineering and being involved with that sort of side of it it's um every little piece along the way it's great and Le Mans still the greatest motor race in the world yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says with a big smile on his face hopefully see you down there yeah. this year thanks oh, Ollie okay something we can show you on here since right. it's radio um, you're looking at ah. um, state-of-the-art Ooh, hybrid technology mm. here uh, I'll let Gary speak to you about it Gary's designed basically everything you see on there they, we can't tell you the manufacturer but this is uh, the latest in the generation of a hybrid motor for a big motor manufacturer hello Gary uh, and um, this is uh, again this is I, I find this amazing every time I come here I know it's been a while since I've been here but this is something that has been completely designed conceived and designed in house first of all uh, yes, it is, John. Um, probably last time you came, we probably had the Corsa Motorsport Hybrid um, on screen at that time. Um, yeah, we weren't allowed to talk about that then either. No, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's another one where we're not allowed to uh, to talk about at the moment. Um, so this particular motor that we've got on, on screen here, um, we've completed the design phase about a month ago. Um, the parts have all been manufactured for that now, and it's currently being, uh, it's currently being built. 
Um, it's a very different um, concept for this machine than, than we've, we've had in the past. Um, we've been really pushed for cost on this machine. Um, so we've taken... Can you tell us, is this motorsport or automotive? Um, so it is for motorsport. All right. Okay. Um, so I won't ask any more yeah. leading <laughs> questions. I was just... Yeah, I, was just thinking, I know that, but uh, I'm, I'm just putting it in context, John. Yeah, so He's just slapped me. Did you hear that? He has just slapped me. <laughs> Um, so this particular um, project that we're working on, um, the design brief right at the start of it was really to produce a, a low-cost version of one of our hybrid motors mm -hmm. um, that's more fitting for higher volumes, um, so maybe to kit out a single-make series or a multi-make series or, mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Um, so on this machine, we've taken some of our existing technology. Um, we've looked to knock some of the cost out of that. Um, some of that comes from the volume, mm -hmm. um, but some of it comes from the decisions we make at the design stage about some of the key components. Um, we're building this motor at the minute, and it's due to go to the customer at the end of March for um, their testing. Um, and the bit I'm actually doing at the minute is is the accounting at the end, really. Um, so looking at the, the costs of all the parts that have gone into this machine, how they scale with volumes, um, so that we can start to make sensible, sensible decisions about batch quantities going going forward. Uh, and how much of this would be manufactured? In, obviously, you don't do the windings and, and things like that, but how much of, of the rest of what I'm seeing on screen there, which is essentially a little electric motor with a, a connector on it that, that can be mounted somewhere within the drivetrain, so how much of that would you make in-house here at Gibson Technology? Um, so the parts um, that we don't make are probably easier to hmm. um, list. Um, so connectors, as John's mentioned, for some of the other projects, um, any magnetic materials, um, any laminations and the, the copper, so the stator and the rotor sections. But everything else is, is manufactured in-house, so we've got shafts, we've got cases, we've got the end caps, um, a lot of the small fasteners, um, hmm. a lot of the custom parts. Um, are all manufactured in-house. There are some specialist operations, um, such as the splining and grinding, that we don't do in-house, yeah. but we have um, fortunate to have quite a, a good network of suppliers locally that we can get things like that done. And how much, again, I'm not, I don't need you to give me specifics, but has there been much change in the eight years since I was last here looking at that other hybrid in terms of where the technology is and moving forward you know you talked about cost in terms of how things have generally speaking as things get on in their lives things do get cheaper yeah um without a doubt i've been fortunate enough to be involved in um two or three hybrid projects at zytec over the last few years and the specific performance of this machine is a massive improvement over what we were looking at um a few years ago um so we're building machines now that are more powerful um they're lighter and um, the other thing is that they can sustain that power for longer periods of time. Right. Um, so the duty cycle that we're able to run these machines to now is much more um, harsh. And that's due to the improvements we've made in the thermal performance of the machine. So getting the heat away from the bits that get too hot um, means that this particular um, application, we're running duty cycles that really five or six years ago we wouldn't have dreamed of, uh, of trying to run them at. Presumably then, when the FIA and the ACO in particular started um, 
encouraging manufacturers, in fact, mandating the P1 cars to have hybrids. This must be driving the technology forwards. We always used to say that motorsport drove technology. It probably hasn't been the case in the last 20 or 30 years. And We were talking about road cars having more technology than racing cars. Are we getting back to a, a, another golden era then where new technology like hybrids, like battery technology, is, is being pushed forward by its applications in, motor, in motorsport? I mean, I think certainly um, from our point of view, um, within our um, previous group um, ownership and the Zytec um, partnership, we certainly had um, parts within the group that went on to be used in road cars mm. that we actually developed in the racing first. Um, I think some of the targets are different in racing to perhaps in a road car, um, but certainly there are a lot of areas of technology that are being pushed in motorsport and it's feeding through into the road car stuff as well. And I'll ask the same question as I asked of your two colleagues. Are you a race fan and do you get the races? Um, I do, yes. Um, yeah, I've been to Le Mans myself several times. I've worked um, last year with one of our teams and, and the year before um, for the for the 24 hours. So I've been and sat there and looked at the screen for 24 hours. And, uh, and listened to John yeah. for 24 hours. Although it wasn't 24 hours last year, but um, <laughs> the, the year before it was. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll scrub past that one. <laughs> See, I don't have the choice. I always have to be there right at the end, no matter what anybody's what anybody's doing. And, and that must give you invaluable experience, though, that you can feed back into, into what you're doing sitting at a screen. Ostensibly, your day job sitting at a screen, people might think, that's a bit tedious. But when you get to see the end result and, and when you understand what you're being asked to do in a broader sense, that, that must help. I think certainly as a designer walking into a garage, um, if there's something the mechanics want to tell you that's either difficult to work on or um, <laughs> they'll tell you, they'll let you know <laughs> and uh, they'll enjoy it and um, that's part of the relationship uh, as I think Ollie mentioned um, we do have a very close relationship with our customers here at Gibson and it's the designers getting out into the garages working with mechanics as we often do we'll get in contact with the teams we'll come up with a prototype and we'll work with them and then we'll make changes based on their suggestions and I think uh, as Ollie rightly pointed out there are a lot of manufacturers where that interaction is not quite so close and quite as quick as we've got here. Um, in another eight years when I come back you'll be able to tell me that, what that is all about. I hope so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you very much. I do like this idea, John, that uh, the, the guys are, are, are being part of a, a greater uh, project, uh, and rather than just being seeing, you know, looking at it through a microscope. It, it's clear that you've got a lot of people here who are very passionate about what they do, but are also passionate about the sport that you, I, and, and all our listeners love. Yeah, I think so. And as I said earlier, you know, a company's as good as the people it em- employs, and. I think if you've got enthusiastic people and people that are dedicated, then that reflects in the product. Well, we've come back out now to the foyer where we came in a wee while ago, back next to the uh, lovely car that we talked about uh, earlier on. It's been too long, John, since I've, uh, I've been here. Thank you for this look around and the opportunity to go inside uh, Gibson Technology. Um, if I was to come back in eight years' time, there's some changes here. I have to say, not a huge amount, although the sport's moved on a little bit. Let's say five years. Where do you think Gibson Technology and indeed the sport is going to be in five years? 
Good question. Um, certainly still involved in motorsport. That's going to be always our core business, I think. Uh, well, it certainly will be. But I think you might find that we've diversified into other areas probably outside of motorsport, be it um, you know the domestic market, the military market, the aerospace market, because I think that it's essential now that that's what you've got to do. Um, the old phrase, all the eggs in one basket. Mm. And we have for some time now, but you know, as I said earlier, we've got immense, immense skill base here. Um, we've got the manufacturing facilities, the engineers able to offer that skill level to other companies outside of motorsport and I really feel there's, that there's a market there so yes we'll still be talking about race cars we'll still be talking about race engines but we might be also talking about other products outside of motorsport John thanks again for the invitation and for your time today you're quite welcome John and thank you for coming around to see us This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.